You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Author, educator, and presidential advisor Booker T. Washington once said, Those who are happiest are those who do the most for others. And Jean-Eugène Robert lived up to that, doing a lot for others over the course of his relatively short life. But he would never know the influence he would have on the people he met, nor on those who came long after him. Born in Blois, France, in December of 1805, Jean-Eugène lost his mother at a very young age. His father, in turn, sent him off to boarding school. You see, the older man had plans for his son. He wanted him to be more, more successful, more wealthy, and have more status among the social elites. He wanted him to become a lawyer. Jean-Eugène obliged out of respect for his father and found work as a clerk for a local attorney. However, he quickly realized that law wasn't the right fit for him. Instead, Jean-Eugène spent his hours working with gears and tools in his hands. He wanted to be more like his father, a watchmaker. But his father had retired by this time, so Jean-Eugène became apprentice to his cousin instead, also in the watch trade. He had grander ambitions, though. Jean-Eugène wanted to branch out from watches and work on bigger projects. He bought himself a set of expensive and educational books on clockmaking, a trade he would dedicate most of his life to. Jean-Eugène would go on to invent a new kind of clock, known as a mystery clock or impossible clock. On first glance, those creations were marvels of modern mechanics. They appeared to have no inner workings. In fact, their hands weren't attached to anything that would rotate them. To many who saw them then, they were magic, which made sense, seeing as how Jean-Eugène never got the books he had ordered in the first place. The shopkeeper hadn't wrapped up two volumes on horological engineering. Rather, Jean-Eugène had accidentally taken home two books on scientific amusements. In other words, magic. The books demonstrated how tricks were accomplished, but didn't show him how to actually perform that. For help, Jean-Eugène sought help from a magician in town who performed at local gatherings. The watchmaker-turned-magician learned sleight of hand, juggling, and common routines like cups and balls. He practiced for hours a day, building his skill as a magician as well as his business making watches and clocks. Around 1830, he started touring around Europe and the United States, performing his magic for small gatherings at parties. It was on one particular trip when he met a young woman named Joseph Cecile Houdin. She was the daughter of a prominent watchmaker. In fact, her family had hailed from the same town in France as Jean-Eugène. A happy coincidence, right? Or had fate planned this little meeting all along? It didn't matter, though. The young couple immediately fell in love and were married in July of that year. 
Jean-Eugène hyphenated his name to include hers, now going by Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, and then the couple moved to Paris, where they started their new life together. He began working for his father-in-law, making watches and inventing different mechanical trinkets, like toys and automatons. On one of his walks through the city one day, Jean-Eugène happened upon a small shop that sold magic supplies. Frequent visitors to the store included magicians of all kind, from seasoned pros to folks just starting out. He talked with them about their techniques and took their advice on how to improve his own. The future seemed bright for Jean-Eugène, until October of 1843, when his ailing wife passed away. She had been only 32 at the time. Pushing through the pain, Jean-Eugène continued to pursue his dream. He attended magic performances and rehearsed his own routine. He also used the money he was making from his watches and automatons to fund new tricks of his own invention. And if you'll pardon the pun, it seems that the time had come to bring his side hobby into the spotlight. With help from a private loan, Jean-Eugène built himself a theater at the Palais Royal, a palatial former residence of cardinals and aristocrats. He brought his vision to life with new curtains, fresh paint, and other accoutrements that gave off an air of sophistication to anyone who stepped inside. Jean-Eugène gave his first performance on July 3rd of 1845. It was a rousing failure. The theater was practically empty. Though he had practiced his tricks for months beforehand, in front of the mirror and for party guests at small gatherings, he had never done them in a large theater, even one that was half empty. His stage fright got the better of him. Not a single newspaper mentioned the event. He had bombed into anonymity. He didn't let it stop him, though. He kept performing, getting better with each new show. New illusions he thought would bring them in. Jean-Eugène developed tricks of his own designed to draw in the crowds. For example, he had a mind-reading trick where his son would stand on stage blindfolded while Jean-Eugène walked into the audience. People would hold up random objects for him to touch, and his son would describe them perfectly even though he couldn't see them. Another of his illusions involved a bottle of ether, which he claimed could make anyone lighter than air if they simply took a whiff. With three stools arranged on stage, he had his son stand on the center one. A cane was placed on each of the opposite stools, then tucked under his son's arms. His son would sniff the bottle of ether and pass out standing up. John Eugene would then remove the middle stool, leaving him hanging by the two canes. Then he would take one cane away, and yet his son would never fall. Finally, Jean Eugene would use his pinky to pull the boy up by his legs until he was parallel with the floor, just hanging there in the air. And the crowds went wild. It was the start of a career that spanned almost a decade until his retirement at the age of 48. But he wouldn't stay out of the magic game for long. Napoleon III had a small problem brewing in French Algeria. The French army had taken over the region and was keeping the peace, but the local religious leaders were undermining their authority. Interestingly, they perform magic of their own to keep their tribes loyal and rebellious. Napoleon wanted Jean Eugene to come out of retirement to show the indigenous population that his magic was more powerful. The former watchmaker did as he was told, performing two shows a week and holding parties for the tribe's leaders. He demonstrated the tricks that made him famous in Paris. The tribes and their leaders were dumbfounded. He was even invited to give private performances as well. During a meeting with the head of one of the tribes, Jean-Eugène invited the man to shoot him. He caught the bullet with his teeth. It seemed as if his mission had been accomplished. There was no way the rebels were going to fight now. Jean-Eugène had saved the day. He spent his final years writing his memoirs on magic and clockmaking before dying of pneumonia in 1871. 
he was just 65 years old. His legacy lives on today in his house in Blois, which has since been converted into a museum dedicated to him and his work. And then there is his name, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. You see, he was an inspiration to folks all over Europe and the Americas, even after his death. One such person was an up-and-coming magician named Eric Weiss, who in 1890, at the age of 16, read Jean-Eugène's book. He liked the name Houdin, but he knew he couldn't use it outright. Instead, he added a letter to the end, which he incorrectly believed translated to, like Houdin. That's what he wanted, after all, to be like Robert Houdin. But in doing so, he became a household name in his own right. We know him today as Harry Houdini. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all. Even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney. Make everybody count. On April 14th of 1721, the town of Port Tobacco Parish, Maryland, welcomed John into the world. John was born into a wealthy family of slave owners and politicians. And like many of those in his era, his father, Samuel, had John educated privately at home until he came of age. And that education seems to have equipped him for a career in government. John entered the political arena at the age of 29 in 1750, where he held the position of sheriff for seven years until his election to the lower house of the Maryland General Assembly. Now, from the beginning, John opposed Britain's heavy hand in colonial affairs. He chaired a committee dedicated to undermining the Stamp Act, which imposed a tax on American colonies and forced them to print written materials on English-made paper. 
He also signed a resolution that kept goods from Britain out of the colony until the Townsend Acts were repealed. In 1769, he took a break from the General Assembly and moved back to Frederick County in western Maryland. And over the next five years, he held a variety of much smaller public positions and led a quieter, more business-focused life. After his earlier career, it must have felt like a needed break. Unfortunately, the rift between the colonies and the crown had been growing wider, and it seemed that war was on the horizon. So John jumped back into the fight for freedom, holding meetings in Frederick County and helping to pass new resolutions in opposition to England's onerous taxes. John also found himself to be a talented recruiter. While he had hoped England and the colonies would eventually mend their fences, he prepared for the worst. He put out a call to patriots in his area to join him, and even gave them guns and other supplies. And then he sent them to George Washington to bolster the general's efforts against the British. Though he had lived a privileged life up until then, mostly funded by his family's plantation, John didn't see himself being of much use behind a desk in Congress. Instead, he stayed in Maryland to recruit more soldiers and raise additional funds. In fact, he even paid those enlisted out of his own pockets when necessary. And his assistance didn't go unnoticed by the people of Maryland. In 1777, John was elected to the state's House of Delegates, where he served for five years. Two years into his term, he was sent to Philadelphia to represent the colony in the Second Continental Congress. Among his achievements there, John had a hand in ratifying the Articles of Confederation, which functioned as a precursor to the Constitution. According to the Articles, there was no executive branch of the United States government. Still, someone needed to make decisions, sign important documents, and moderate discussions among committees and congressional members. It wasn't a position of true leadership, but it was a necessary one, and none had proved themselves more worthy of it than John Hansen. As a great organizer and financier of the revolution, he was more than qualified to step up and represent this new country. He didn't much like the job, though. The work was so tedious to him that he almost quit after just one week. He was an older man by then and just wanted to spend his remaining years with his family, not stuck in an office in Philadelphia signing papers. On November 5th of 1781, John Hansen was elected president of Congress under the Articles of Confederation, a position he held until he stepped down a year later. Though he only remained in office for a short time, he still holds quite a lasting legacy to this day. First, it was John Hansen who proclaimed that Thanksgiving would be held on the last Thursday in November every year, a practice that is still observed today. And secondly, he wasn't the only president of the Continental Congress. His role may have been poorly defined by the Articles, but he was considered by many to be the first true president of the United States. And on November 30th of 1781, just a couple of weeks after taking office, he received a letter from an old friend. I congratulate your excellency, the sender wrote, on your appointment to fill the most important seat in the United States. And the author of that note of congratulations for John's election to the office of president our other first president of the United States, George Washington. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show and you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious.